Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. You know, we all grew up waiting for a show to come on or waiting for a book to be returned to the library so that we could take it out. Well, now there is so much to watch and read at our literal fingertips. Even this show is available whenever and wherever you are. And we are such a good selection for you because we're like that train ride around Disneyland. It's a ride, sure, but it also helps you figure out what else you'd like to explore. We've got media recommendations and special guests with unique offerings for you that they have created with their minds and hearts and talents. Our friend, Congressman Adam Schiff, is running for Senate. He's been very busy saving Western democracy, but he still makes time for his podcasting constituents like Fritz. And Dee Wallace is an actor, an author, a healer, a teacher, and you know her from E.T. and Cujo and Critters, and she's got a bunch of new projects to share with you today. So yesterday, Fritz and I, we fired up our Zooming machines for a very special guest. Congressman Adam Schiff works towards transformational progressive change, creating an economy that better serves everyone, making health care universal, confronting the climate crisis, protecting our environment, passing gun safety laws, and addressing inequality. Adam Schiff is a proven leader in Congress on efforts to protect our democracy, our national security, and the right to vote for all Americans. Now a candidate for senator from California, Congressman Schiff was appointed by Speaker Pelosi as a lead impeachment manager on a team of seven House members responsible for presenting the first impeachment case against Donald Trump to the Senate. Congressman Schiff was also a member of the January 6th Select Committee. His best-selling book, Midnight in Washington, takes us behind the scenes on his historical experiences and his bold career path, which has uniquely prepared him to protect the democracy we cherish. Also, he's in a book with Dee Wallace. Which just so upped his are, game right there. He's a slam dunk for the Senate. It's a now. media path intersection. Right. And, <laughs> and please note Fritz's calm and my silent terror as we speak with Congressman Schiff. I've known him for many years. Hello. Hey, Hi. Congressman, how are you? I'm good. I'm good, Fritz. I like the beard. I'm just doing everything they wouldn't let me do when I worked at NBC. <laughs> how are you? Well, Thank you so much for making time for us. We appreciate uh, it so much. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Louise, how are you? I'm doing well. Nice to see you. Good to see you. You ready to roll here, Congressman? We know your time is valuable. Uh, let me just uh, make sure I'm on Do Not Disturb, but I am. I am ready to roll. Go ahead, Weezy. I have to click play on GarageBand or record on GarageBand <laughs> and record on Zoom to make sure we have backups of our backups. It's almost as complicated as being a congressman. No, it's not. All right, here we go. Uh, we're going to try to, we're going to talk in general terms uh, about, we, we'd love this to be evergreen so it can play for a long time, congressman. And we're going to talk about what you see uh, your, your mandates will be as a senator and talk about your book. And I'm going to start with your book. You said at the end of your book, and it was so prophetic in light of what we saw at CPAC over the weekend, that, quote, we're not out of the woods yet, not as long as the specter of Donald Trump hangs over the Republican Party and the nation. That was very prophetic. This seems to be, uh, this thing seems to have metastasized to beyond what we thought. Any comments on what you saw and your response to that over the weekend? Yeah, well, you know, Trump uh, was there again at the CPAC convention, going through the same litany of grievances uh, and getting the same applause from that conservative audience 
that, uh, you know, apparently buys into a lot of the big lies about the last presidential election uh, and, and the former president's sense of grievance about things. Uh, sadly, that party remains very much a cult of personality around the former president. Uh, and even if Donald Trump is unsuccessful in the Republican primary, and that's still a very big if, uh, he showed in uh, 2016 his capacity to eviscerate his Republican opposition. But even if he were replaced by a Ron DeSantis, DeSantis is still very much running on a Trumpist platform, uh, one of division, one of alienation, one of pitting, you know, sort of us against them. Uh, you know, uh, Trump was the first president of my lifetime to make no effort to try to win over people that he didn't win over when he was elected. And that still seems to be where that party is. Uh, so uh, I, I think the January 6th hearings that we did uh, helped inform the public and, and defeat a lot of big liars in the midterms. But uh, nonetheless, the former president still has a really iron grip on that party. Let's go into your background a little, because I, in your book, uh, you, you claim that you were born bipartisan. And I think it'd be interesting to hear you talk about, you know, your household and, and how, how kind of civil it was. I never knew whether any of my friends' parents were one party or another. It just it never came up. And now I think kids know. I bet your kids know who, who their friends' parents voted for. But talk about your childhood and your household. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Things have changed so dramatically that way. Um, not only do we know people's affiliations among our friends and our neighbors, uh, it also creates big rifts within families that didn't used to be there. Uh, my mother uh, was a lifelong Republican. She came from a long line of Republicans. I have a wonderful photograph on the wall of my mother's father uh, with Eisenhower wearing a giant win with Ike button. Uh, my uh, grandfather was a Republican county chair in Western Massachusetts uh, when I was a kid. Uh, I think the only time I heard him talk about Democrats, it was in a pretty pejorative way. Um, and my father, on the other hand, was from a long line of Democrats, you know, very much FDR Democrats. And, and yet there was no strife in the family. Um, I think they raised... Uh, their two sons, my brother and myself, uh, to believe that neither party had monopoly on good judgment all the time uh, and not to be dogmatic. Uh, and, and I think that's where, the way a lot of people raised. A big part of it was probably uh, a function of the fact that most Americans got their news from three broadcast stations. Uh, I remember watching Walter Cronkite when I was a kid. Uh, and we might disagree with what to do with the facts we learned, but we agreed that there were facts. Uh, and now we've moved into a world in which people get their news often curated by social media that shows them only what they like um, and shows them something different than it shows their neighbor. Uh, and it's become increasingly difficult to even talk to each other. Uh, I don't know how many families split up. Uh, I remember, you know, one of my colleagues one of the impeachment managers in the first trial uh, who told me that when he became a, an impeachment manager, his own mother said that he was a traitor to the country. Um, can't imagine mother saying that to their child, you know, back in, in the, the 60s and 70s and 80s. Uh, I suppose it did happen around Vietnam, but um, pretty shocking divisions these days. 
Yeah, that, that's uh, an interesting comment. My, my parents were uh, very similar to what the Republican Party is today. They were a house divided among the Republican Party. My father was a Reagan Republican because he was a businessman and he was a fiscal Republican. My mother's Republicanism was a little more visceral and racist and about the other. And she was a little more hardcore. And uh, but it never it never became an issue. They didn't discuss it. They, as a matter of fact, talking about politics around the table made them nervous, which was kind of unfortunate because it would have been fun to engage. But so so they were they they were they were divided among themselves, kind of the way the Republican Party finds itself these days. Well, I, I remember when I first ran for the state senate. Uh, so this was back in 1996, meeting with a very conservative Glendale mayor named Ginger Bremberg. Uh, she was probably all of about five foot four and just was wonderful and tough as nails, very conservative. I went to, to coffee with her to get advice from her. And uh, in my household as a kid, the one area of common ground between the, you know, my father's side of the family and my mother's was there was there was agreement that Roosevelt was a great man. Franklin Roosevelt was a great man. He done great things for the country. I suppose that spoke to my mother's uh, republicanism as being a pretty moderate kind. And, uh, and, but I grew up thinking that everybody agreed on Roosevelt. And I remember having coffee with Ginger and, uh, and the, the primary had just taken place. And a voter had told me that he voted for me and that he had also voted at one time earlier, much earlier in his life, he voted for Franklin Roosevelt. And I thought, well, that's a that's a wonderful, if very tenuous connection to Franklin Roosevelt, that someone in the same lifetime had voted for me that had voted for him. And I remember Ginger telling me I wouldn't I wouldn't tell that story in Glendale. There are a lot of people in Glendale who are still pissed off at the Roosevelts, who, who believe the Roosevelts were traitors to their class. And that was my first inkling that, oh, I guess there's still some pretty profound disagreements, even over Franklin Roosevelt. Wow. But the guy saved the country. I mean, you get so locked into your tunnel vision partisan uh, identity that uh, the guy saved the country a couple of different ways. Let me ask you this, because you're, you're running for Senate, so your responsibilities and your concentration become statewide as opposed to local. I mean, you have many passionate things about what made you a successful congressman, uh, like environmental issues, gun issues. And I have the feeling that because of all the other cacophony of political problems that we have now and all the darkness, that our attention has been diverted away from these very important areas like the environment. I mean, we don't need any more evidence of climate change, especially here in the state of California. And the gun issue gets worse every day. Is there a way or do you see a time in the next several years when we can divert some of our political energy and our concentration back on these sorely needed issues? Because it seems like we're, we're forgetting the really important stuff in the midst of all this noise. Uh, I think there is a way, and we just have to make a way uh, to get it done. Because you're right, um, you know, the, the problem with our climate is just getting worse. Uh, I never would have imagined uh, that there would be people sledding in the La Crescenta part of my district. Oh my God. Um, and, uh, and yet we see worse and worse fire seasons and worse flooding and worse mudslides, and it's just continuing. And of course, on the gun issue, uh, just the, the horrendous 
multiplication of these incidents of mass shootings uh, every week, sometimes every day. Uh, and we don't have to live this way. Uh, and and vis-a-vis the planet, we can't afford to live this way. You know, I'm very proud we made a very massive investment in attacking climate change and the Inflation Reduction Act, the most substantial in our history. But it has to be just the beginning because alone it will not be enough. Uh, and if we're going to hand off a planet that's habitable to our kids and grandkids, we are really going to have to uh, invest in the kind of uh, science and technological solutions to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels. Uh, there has to be a way of getting this done, and there has to be a way of depoliticizing it such that Republicans can accept uh, the science and the fact and and not feel that if they do, there's no home for them in the Republican Party. Uh, the same is true and even more pronounced when it comes to guns. The good news and bad news on guns uh, is the uh, first I'll start with the bad news, and that is the Republican Party really has not moved much on guns. Um, and you could see this when about a year or two ago, when there was that horrible shooting in Buffalo, New York, the Republican member who represented the adjacent area uh, announced that he could no longer in good conscience oppose an assault weapons ban. Well, it was only days later that this Republican member of Congress was forced to announce that he would not seek reelection because it had been made abundantly clear to him by the local party that they would defeat him uh, for the audacity of, of supporting something which had once become law, uh, which saved a lot of lives and could again become law, but is such a heresy in today's GOP. The good news is on the other side of the aisle, uh, Democrats who used to run away from this issue are running towards it. Uh, Democrats in purplish districts throughout the country are running to do something about this, and they view the issue as something not only they can survive, but also they can they can uh, campaign on, uh, and it will be a benefit with voters, not a liability. So we made progress on one side of the aisle. We have not made much progress on the other, and we're going to have to figure out a way. We just can't live this way. Um, finally, you know, what I would say in terms of the difference between representing a House district, um, one of, you know, uh, over 50 in California versus the whole state, is, you know, the, the broad issues are the same in the sense of guns and the planet. The local issues, though, are very different. Uh, and one of the things that I'm really enjoying about the Senate campaign is, is getting out to other parts of the state, learning the unique challenges in different parts of the state. Uh, and how I could help uh, in solving uh, these issues in other parts of the state. And to give you just one illustration, I was in the Central Valley last week uh, in Fresno. Uh, and while I expected to hear a lot about agriculture and water, uh, and I did, I, I also learned that there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of families in the Central Valley that cannot drink the water out of their tap uh, because the aquifers are so depleted uh, chemicals leach into their water supply, they have to have water uh, trucked in every week or every month. You know, we've had this discussion. I just want to add to exactly what you said. We've had this discussion among those of us in the weather business that forget the drought. I think that water in the state of California is going to become a huge political issue. The uh, compartmentalizing of who gets Colorado River runoff, who gets the Intermountain West runoff, what we do about the Central Valley and the projects that they've, they've uh, got underway up there. I think that's going to be 
and I, you know this better than I do, a huge political issue, even post-drought, that we're going to have to deal with. Oh, it is, absolutely. And But the facet of it, though, that I think doesn't get the attention uh, in this debate over whether uh, farmers are going to get more of the water or consumers in Southern California are going to get more of the water is that today there are thousands and thousands of people that can't drink the water out of their tap, uh, that have uh, air quality that is among the worst in the nation, that don't have access to broadband. This is true in many parts of California. We think of that as being true maybe in the Rust Belt or maybe in the Appalachian region. We don't think about it being true in California, and yet it is. Uh, and, and this is why it's so important, I think, for, for people running for statewide office to get out and make sure they, they understand uh, the issues in different parts of the state uh, so that I can help meet the needs of people in every part of the state. Well, I, I, I want to run something by you. I just have this theory that guys who are so obsessed with their masculinity are men who were abused and belittled by their fathers who were similarly emasculated by their fathers, et cetera. So they arm themselves. They try to control women's bodies. They're terrified of a drag show, lest they accidentally find themselves aroused by a man. They're just obsessed with it because they've had, they've had the crap scared out of them as little kids that they're not going to be enough of a man. And, you know, maybe we should let Tucker know that the M&M with the heels that he was so hot for was actually a dude. Uh, <laughs> but, like, what are your thoughts on, like, because I'm always trying to figure out why are people passionate about what they're passionate about? Like, what could we do to, to help if there's this hidden cycle of violence, you know, within families? It's causing uh, all the know, rage. Uh, it's a good question. I was thinking about Tucker Carlson when you teed up that question because... Uh, he did a, a segment on his show the other night uh, attacking me. And the whole premise of it was that the most dangerous people are weak men. Uh, this was his premise. Uh, and, uh, and I don't know where this comes from. I, I mean, I don't know what his family history is and what his childhood was that, that, that uh, resulted in, in what are, whatever deformity of character that he has. Uh, but, I, you know, if you have been following this whole Dominion uh, scandal um, where we learned in the private emails of people like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity um, privately acknowledging that what they're saying publicly is a big lie. Uh, and that, and frankly, in Tucker Carlson's case, one advocating to fire a woman who had the you know audacity to say something truthful. Um, this is, this is who they are. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think clearly there is a need for better mental health in this country uh, when we see the, the impacts, um, uh, uh, you know, in the case of the former president of what I think has to be described as a malignant, the most malignant form of narcissism. You know, I'll give you the sort of exhibit A, if I were writing the physician's desk reference uh, page for malignant narcissism, this is the example <laughs> I use. In, in requesting Trump's testimony before the January 6th committee, uh, we received back from the former president a lengthy, like, I don't know, 13 or 14 page diatribe from him. Uh, and in that diatribe, he repeated something which he has said many, many times, which nonetheless continues to strike me as such evidence of his mental un unwellness. And that is the complaint that he still hasn't gotten enough credit for the size of the crowd on January 6th. No. Not, 
not even the size of the crowd on inauguration day, which was a different weirdness uh, and lie, but but rather his point is the insurrection was much bigger, and and I should have got more credit for the size of the crowd wow. on the mall that day, and he included even photographs of the crowd on the mall. Um, so I, I don't know, you know, what it is with. I'm sure he wasn't happy about the CPAC rounding. <laughs> Things looked a little <laughs> thin in there. Man. I'm sure you're right. He'll but, enhance that with a Sharpie. <laughs> yeah. like, going back to the Fox thing, do you think there should be accountability for the higher ups at Fox? Or what, I mean, what, what would be the end game of this? Because the problem is that the audience that needs to hear this accountability, that hear it needs to hear the uh, you know the 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 text from the Dominion suit aren't going to listen to it because they're listening to other forms of media. So. It'll be kind of on deaf ears, the same battle you had to fight with the 1-6 hearings, which were brilliantly executed, but we were all not sure that the right people were hearing this information. So what do you think is going to happen at the top of Fox, if anything? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and you're absolutely right. People who live in Fox world are not going to even learn about this scandal because Fox is not going to cover it. Uh, or if they do cover it, they're going to ridicule it uh, and present it in a false light. Um, I, I had an interesting conversation with a former board colleague of Murdoch's uh, early on in the Ukraine war when American companies, to their credit, were leaving Ukraine uh, and it was hurting their bottom line, but they were doing the right thing. And he had Fox in its most valuable hour, its primetime hour with Tucker Carlson, was continuing to broadcast Kremlin talking points that Ukraine was somehow not a real country and that they should we should back Russia because they had the oil. This is what Tucker Carlson was pushing out. And I asked this former board member, not a board member on Fox, but on another entity, um, what is it with Murdoch? How can he do this? Does he not care anything about the country? Does he not care anything about democracy? Is it really just about the money? And his answer was, yes, I know him. Yes, I serve with him on a board. And yes, it's just about the money. Uh, and indeed, this is what Murdoch admitted in that deposition. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and if it's true, as it is, that the only thing that matters to him and executives and the hosts on Fox is the money, then the only way of attacking it is attacking the money. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this is why the outcome of this Dominion litigation um, is so important, because if they're held liable for their lies, it may be the only thing that can be done. Uh, I, you know, I'm often asked, why don't we impose a fairness doctrine like we used to have? where TV stations have to broadcast both points of view. Um, that worked when people were getting their news from three broadcast stations. And because the public owned the airwaves, we could impose a requirement. They'd be fair if they want to use the public resource, the public airwaves. But these, the, if you can call it news, what's delivered on Fox is delivered via a private pipeline, cable. Uh, and we don't have that same capacity to insist on it being at all or in any way, shape or form fair. And so it isn't. And so perhaps the only way to go after it is by going after the money when they knowingly and maliciously lie as they were about the election. Will we ever, I mean, it's been a long slog for, for Democrats in terms of accountability. So in, you know a ton more than we do about any of this stuff. Will we ever know the extent to which Trump and House and Senate members are conspiring with Russia and other uh, adversaries? Uh, I'm not sure we will know completely this story. I think, uh, although, although I would say, I think that perhaps the biggest story with Trump and Russia 
was out in the open. Uh, and like so many things uh, with the Trump administration, what was out in the opening was as, as damning as anything we could imagine in private. And I say that because uh, Trump during the 2016 campaign was telling the public he had no business dealings with Russia. That was a big lie. Uh, but we wouldn't learn it was a big lie until he was already president of the United States. And it was discovered that during the campaign, while he was telling the country that, in fact, he was trying to consummate what would have been the most lucrative deal of his life, that is a Moscow Trump Tower, that would have made him hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, and for which he was seeking the help of the Kremlin. His personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, then working for him, was literally on the phone with the Kremlin trying to get the help uh, of Putin and the regime to build that tower. And when this was discovered, and Trump is confronted with it on the White House grounds, uh, his hair unnaturally unmoved by the Marine One rotor. <laughs> and he's asked, what about that? You know, you were lying to the country about your business dealings with Russia. His answer, as often with Trump, was very revealing, in large part because I don't think he realized how damning it was. But his answer was, uh, I might have lost the election. Why should I miss out on all those opportunities? Oh, Lord. Um, and, yeah. and so what, he's, what he was telling us and I think the same was true when he was president, is that, look, I stood to make a lot of money. I would be I would be a fool to ever. It's the Rupert Murdoch defense. It is. It <laughs> it's is. It's all about money. It's green. A fool, a fool to criticize Putin, or he would be a fool to, to do anything that would diminish his chances of all that money. I know you only have a couple minutes left, but I got to tell you, one of the most troubling questions that comes into my mind lately is, how many of the Mar-a-Lago documents do you think may have already made their way to Putin? That's what I think the whole point of being so protective of those documents was. Could be could be a foolish thought on my part, but I, I couldn't help but think that the whole time and why he's so protecting returning them now because those that are missing might be in Moscow right now. And he'd like to let his food taster go. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know what he was doing with those documents. Um, I suspect that with, res with respect to some of them, like his love letters with Kim Jong-un, <laughs> uh, he felt they're his property, uh, even though they're not. Um, and uh, and that, you know, he wants to put them up in Trump Tower on the wall, uh, on his wall of fame. Uh, or who knows, maybe one day he wants to sell them. Uh, there's often a financial motive. And it's not even necessarily sell them to an enemy as so much as, you know, auction them Anybody off. Anybody that wants it, highest, highest bidder. Uh, exactly. There's usually a profit motive not too far uh, from the explanation when it comes to Donald Trump. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the the more serious thing is that these documents are floating around a public place like Mar-a-Lago uh, and the president uh, and his lawyers appear to have been lying about it and withholding them even when they were asked for them, something that uh, comes very close, if not crosses the legal line of obstruction of justice. And I hope that uh, the attorney general will do what he promised, which is um, follow the evidence where it leads and apply one rule of law, whether you're the former president of the United States or an ordinary citizen. Well, I just want to say one thing to you before you leave. Uh, you know that I'm a big fan and have been for a long time, but nobody has given us more hope and more uh, pride than you as a an impeachment prosecutor and as the way you and your cohorts conducted yourselves during the January 6th meetings. 
I don't think there's anybody that could be more qualified to be a senator for our state. And I wish you luck in your campaign. Congressman, thanks for talking with us. Thank you very much. Uh, really appreciate those kind of words. And, and so wonderful to join you again. No problem, man. Wait till you see the new ice house. The new ice house is unbelievable. <laughs> oh, I, I can't wait to see it. It's so great. <laughs> and, and, and Media Path is officially endorsing Adam Schiff for Senate. And Fritz is available to help you with fundraisers. And, you yeah, know, whatever you it. need, no. we're, we're, we're there for you. We want to help. Thank you very, very much. In fact, <laughs> Fritz, I was just talking about you the other day uh, with a another weatherman I happened to meet uh, and referring uh, to your wonderful line about uh, being a weatherman in L.A., where there's no weather. Right. <laughs> I made a 40-year career out of it, and I'm really proud of it. <laughs> hey, be well. Thank you so much, Congressman. Thank you. You take care now. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, so that happened. And now we have recommendations. Read Adam's book, Midnight in Washington. He is such a compelling writer, and he's so funny. You're going to love it. He's a very warm and amusing person. He really is. I've done fundraisers with him, and he he does he warms the audience up for like 10 minutes with all these great Washington jokes. He's very, very amusing. So Adam Schiff is your warm-up guy. He's my warm-up guy. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so what have you been watching this week? All right, th- this is an interesting movie. Uh, this is uh, maybe one of the loveliest films ever made about a father-daughter relationship. It's called After Son. It's streaming now on a couple of platforms. Divorced dad, Calum, and his 10-year-old daughter, Sophie, are on a tropical vacation. There is no real plot, and it takes until the very end of the movie for there to be resolution, but if you wait, you'll love it. This is a character study of a divorced dad intent on a great bonding experience with his daughter, and the daughter's growing up and becoming a, a, well, her own person while worshiping her father and so happy to be spending this limited time with him. The film clicks through every seemingly mundane scene of every day of the vacation, and they're recording chunks of their days on a camcorder, which becomes pivotal later. The thread wanders through the film that isn't instantly explained, and that is that the dad seems to suffer with occasional bouts of depression and melancholy. We're never really sure why. Maybe his divorce from Sophie's mom, maybe outside pressures, work-related pressures. We're not sure. There are hints that he's on a course of self-healing, too. He does Tai Chi. He reads a lot of self-help books, which are laying around the hotel room that you see. And Sophie, the intuitive young lady that she is, is aware that something must be stirring in the soul of her dad. You spend most of the film waiting for some other shoe to drop. And it doesn't until the end when we realize that this whole film is Sophie 20 years later looking at the camcorder video and remembering this all too infrequent time she spent with her dad. If you're a divorced parent, if you have a daughter, this film will break your heart. Again, the most real and profound look at a relationship between a father and daughter I've ever seen. Dad Caleb is played by Paul Mescal. The daughter, Sophie, is played by first-time actor Frankie Corey. And I'm here to tell you, this woman's going to be a star. You can't take your eyes off her during the film. It's called After Sun. Well, I watched it too, Fritz, and usually we, we only recommend, but I must tell you, I did not get it. Well, did you wait to the end of the movie? Yeah, I still, I don't understand. It's, there's a lot of uh, film school cinematography uh, lingering uh, way too long uh, on uh, somebody folding clothing, uh, odd angles. I think it's for film people, it's 
amazing perhaps but I, I did it because I, I I have a daughter and I just every moment like they're sitting by the pool and she's listening to her kind of music and he's listening to his and everything seemed familiar and resonated with me just for that reason well I'm that's the only reason I like that I said there's no plot and if you didn't have the experience of having a daughter you're going check please I don't have a daughter that I remember you know <laughs> she may feel differently definitely it's it is not a typical storytelling film it's an experience so you're going to go on that ride and you know take in what you take in and it may resonate because it resonates with Fritz so it may resonate with you as a film person cinematographer specifically a lot of people keep recommending this movie to me so oh. i feel like it's a film person a film person movie okay. and they wanted to give the handheld illusion because most of the action is on a camcorder yeah, yeah. but i keep getting recommended no, so I'll it's have- uh, i'll tell you what blew me away was the, the father daughter relationship and the acting chops of this young woman who's never acted before she's a I'm kid telling you man she's yeah. she's a kid she's not a young I'm really woman good. Yeah. yeah, she's okay. very good and quite adorable. Mm-hmm. All right, so my pick is uh, a little, once again, Fritz, I've been delving from novel into streaming. Into, You're doing a great job. Yeah. I don't know how you consume work, all this stuff. I'm working my way through things. Okay. Taylor Jenkins Reid brought us the best-selling novels, Malibu Rising, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, and Carrie Soto. Her 2019 monster hit book, Daisy Jones and the Six, is now a prime miniseries which tells the fictional tale of an iconic 70s co-ed rock band, sort of like a Fleetwood Mac, featuring romantic couplings, epic rivalries, and the star-crossed, smoldering, sultry heat pounding just beneath the surface of the palpable bond between lead vocalist Daisy Jones and Billy Dunn. The book is designed to become script. It's told in interview fashion years after the epic and notorious band implosion as if members and producers sat with the author recounting their own personal perspectives on events. The author even writes the band's lyrics, which appear in full at the end of the book. They are deep and raw, and they serve as an important emotional narrative to the story. These lyrics have now been put to music for the Prime series, just as you may have hoped and imagined they would while reading the book. The soundtrack was created by Blake Mills with Marcus Mumford, Phoebe Bridges, and Jackson Brown. It's now available on Spotify and Apple and wherever you can find your music. Daisy is portrayed by Riley Keough, who knows a bit about rock and roll superstardom. Her grandfather is Elvis, if you're you know, Elvis Presley. familiar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Big rockabilly Elvis star. Presley, yes. Sam Claflin is Billy. He is, like so many great American actors, a Brit. <laughs> this is a multimedia project with much to enjoy. Read the book first or just watch the series and get into the story and the music. Prime is dropping new episodes every Friday. It's called Daisy Jones and the Six. Yeah, I saw the first one because the others weren't out yet. And, you know, as soon as you realize that Riley is Elvis's granddaughter, you just look for physical uh, similarities. And she really does. She looks like her mom and her mom's dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's, and very, she's a good actor. She's great. And they all had to learn how to perform and play their instruments and sing and harmony. And uh, Yeah, they never did that. Not, I guess none of the cast members had done that in a group before. Right. right? They went to band camp. I've watched some interviews. Yeah. So I, I, I love it. I think it's my era. I, it's just for me, it's right down the center. I love it. Let's Best rock and roll band movie of all time? Almost Famous. No, Spinal Tap. Okay. Yeah, but that's, that's, a, that's a parody. Almost Famous was very real. <laughs> Almost Famous is awesome. I mm-hmm. love it. Good. 
D. Wallace has logged over 250 film credits, six series, and over 400 commercials. She's best known for her roles in E.T., Cujo, and Critters, which all have important anniversaries that have just passed or are coming up. She can tell us all about it. D. is a fully credentialed teacher. She's worked in the public school system as well as at her own dance and acting studios. She has expanded her love of teaching and the principles she finds to be empowering for children into daily sessions, a radio show, and five books. Her work is based on the principles of accepting responsibility and loving ourselves early to best create the lives we deserve and desire. Welcome, Dee. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. You, you look amazing today. I must tell you. You look so pretty. Yours, your, your podcast lighting director does an unbelievable job. Oh, that would be me. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> really? the cutest sweater ever. That would be the, the good old ring light from Amazon. That looks very good. <laughs> oh, the, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That, that you know, and I... I have so much to say after listening to all this. Uh-oh. Okay, good. Please do. First of all, I love Adam. I love that we share part in the book in good company. It's an amazing book. A lot of famous people with our beloved animals. It's it's so brilliant how uh, Johanna Sigmund captured the love and the personality. So what is it? It's people sort of describing their experiences with their pets. No, no. It's photos. Oh. Photos of us interacting with our animals. And she just has a way of capturing the magic and the love. You know, animals are just love. Mm -hmm. You know, they they just are. So tell us about your animal co-star in the book. (laughs) My freedom. She's a rescue. Her name was Marguerite when I found her. I went, oh, no, this will never do. So <laughs> I said, come on, I'm going to give you your freedom. And they went, oh, what a beautiful name, a name, Frida. Ooh. So that's who she is. She's my soulmate. I haven't gone to the bathroom by myself in six years. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, and I love Adam. Aside from that, um, I, I, I love you. And I love what you stand for. And, and I love the fact that in different ways, we are both working toward the same thing uh, through my energy work. And I teach people really to take responsibility for creating their own lives. Mm-hmm. And that begins with self-love. I, I think his soul and your soul exist in the same zip code. It's I, just making people's I lives better. Him, thank you. When I when I see him, I'm... I'm drawn to his light. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I so appreciate the work that he's done in keeping um, our Congress truthful and in integrity. And my, my hope and desire is that the entire world moves into that and especially respect. You know, I don't care if you agree with the president or disagree with the president. There is a world that I grew up in where, you know, I'm getting all kerfluffed here. That's okay. Where my, my mother taught me to read, absolutely to speak my truth, always, but to always have respect and allow other people to speak their truth. I was going to show the State of the Union to my granddaughter. And 
I've I felt like I had to cut segments of it mm-hmm. because I I would never teach my children to disrespect someone who is standing up and speaking in the place of authority like happened during that. Yeah, we're in a different era. That bugs me too. It's it really makes me uncomfortable. That's not okay. No, it's, it's not, not a wrestling match and you, you're not the person speaking. Mm-hmm. So respect. I agree. Well, it's well, it's too bad. How old is your granddaughter? Uh, 10. Okay, Aww. well, that's too bad you couldn't share that with her. Well, I did share parts of it with her, but not the part that got all disrespectful and yelling and you know, I, I just want us all to ask ourselves, what are we teaching our children? Mm-hmm. And what are we allowing that to do to our own presence and energy? Let me, right. let me also pose this question. We, a lot of the folks that are on the right side of things, their kids are involved in organized sports. And their kids are taught to respect the outcome of the game, to exactly. walk to the center of the field and shake the hand of the opposing Good team. Point. How are they allowing this? How are they demanding that? The how new- are we allowing this? Mm-hmm. How are how are we how allowing? Are we as a nation? And look, this is a nation for the people, by the people, of the people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we we have to step forward now and discourage discourage people who will not respect the principles this country is based on to serve in our in our Congress. And I know I'm going to get a lot of flack about this. Oh, don't worry about it. And I don't care. No, good for you. Well <laughs> said. I don't care. I, I just, somebody's, we all have to just start speaking up. On a brighter note, you want to talk about fatal attraction. Yes, I do. But I want to add to Wheezy because Wheezy made a great point, a great metaphor, which is kids going to also um, just whatever kids have to put up with at school because their parents are nuts and they must have to really deflect a lot of criticism and teasing, depending on how old they are in whatever school they're in. Uh, But they have to, you know, they have to bear the brunt of their parents weirdness at school. You know, I I just don't know. It depends on. What state, what school? You're yeah. In. There's a lot of places in the country where everyone is, is a Trumper and there's Trump signs on all the lawns and all that. And okay, it, it, you know, if you think that he reflects your values. But like Dee said, we have to respect one another, we have to practice civility. That's just, this is how our nation yeah. was founded, not on only tell me the news that I want to hear mm-hmm. i've been listening to all these lies i would like more lies please that's not healthy mm-hmm. that's a toxic yeah, diet and i i i think one of the great challenges too is that we all have to get a lot more educated absolutely that's the problem right there spoken you, by a former teacher no you're 100 percent right and you can't you, you can't do that if you're only listening to a news outlet that's no. that's business model is to lie to you mm-hmm. and you can't do that if you ban books of course yeah, crazy i can't i, I can't know. even yeah, yeah. believe the guy you're talking. thinking about will not be president of the united states he's too radical so don't don't think about it it won't happen i i don't give anything that i don't want i don't give any energy to Good. Because whatever ener- whatever you focus on and give your energy to expands. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, it's like giving oxygen to a fire. You just that's right. Exactly. 
So we have to be very clear about what we want, focus only on that, and feel a lot of love around it. All right, you brought up Fatal Attraction. I want to tell you that uh, I was anxious to see your opinion of this and how they stretched it out because this was, and maybe it's my bad experience in relationships, one of the single <laughs> <laughs> One of the most horrible movies ever. I mean, it was, uh, not horrible, a great movie, but scary. And thinking, oh my God, that girl's nuts. So did they keep the main storyline and stretch it out over several episodes? It, it, is it similar to the plot of the first one? of the, of the Very movie? similar. Very similar. They, they do depart from it in a couple of places. I play the neighbor. Oh. Uh-huh. So you weren't no, blindly raped? I can't tell you. I can't tell you. I can't tell you okay. what happened to somebody. Right. Okay. <laughs> but um, working with Lizzie Kaplan was one of the great joys of my career. Uh, she stars in it. And I don't know. She walked on. You know, you know, Fritz, it's, it's, it's challenging sometimes for a guest star. Uh, all the regulars have been together, they and the cast and the crew and everybody, they know each other. And then you walk on and uh, I appear in three separate episodes. And the minute I walked on that set, she came over, she put her hands on my shoulder and she says, Dee Wallace, I just love you. I love your work. I love everything about you and gave me a big hug. Well, they took the tension out of you being there amongst the strangers, right? That's pretty cool. Oh, my gosh. You have, and, you know, Angie Dickinson did that for me and stood up for me. My first guest star role ever when I, when I played uh, on Police Women. And I have tried to do that on all my sets that I have starred on. To, to make the day players and everybody really welcome and feel a part of it because it, it helps the whole, you know, it, it, it helps everybody create the best. I'll, t- I'll tell you, if you'll permit me, I'll tell you a similar story, but not the magnitude of yours. I used to, two, for two weeks a year, go fill in for Al Roker on the Today Show. Oh, sure. When, when he was on vacation and I would do it over Christmas. And the first time I did it, I was scared to death. I mean, it's the Today Show, this iconic show. And I went on there, and Katie Couric came up and introduced herself to me. And I mean, for a half hour, this woman walked me around the office, introduced me to everybody. She was so warm and accepting and and just took all the tension out of the experience. And I began to see her value on the show because Brian Gumbel, who might be one of the most brilliant broadcasters in the history of broadcasting, is not a warm, fuzzy cat. When he's on this set, he's concentrating and he's he, he doesn't care if I'm yeah. comfortable or not. But she just made that experience so lovely. So it was very similar to what you had. Really, oh, really meant I never forgot beautiful. her for that. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, mm-hmm. it makes a huge difference. Yep. Aside from the fact that Lizzie is just a consummate actress. And uh, we just had a really good time connecting and playing. Yeah. Where's it streaming? <laughs> I think people are going to really love, oh, my dear God. I okay, think well, we'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah, Paramount Plus. Oh, Paramount Plus. Okay, That's cool. right, Paramount Dee's, Plus. Dee's calendar Sorry, is I very full. I have so many things she going has, on. She's, I can't remember where they all really are. Really, she's having very active. a very busy year. She's Her calendar is full. Siri is sick of her. Um, <laughs> she keeps asking, where am I supposed to be? What am I doing? It's a lot. But I want to talk about 
because I think the fans would like to know that you've had important anniversaries for E.T., The Howling, and Critters. What happens at an anniversary? What is requested of you? Well, for E.T. and Cujo, we've been on the circuit uh, quite a bit together, the boys and I, all my sons, (laughs) Danny Pintaro from uh, Cujo and and my boys from E.T., uh, we've made a lot of personal appearances at the conventions and mm-hmm. and just going to make personal appearances. So it's it's been great because, uh, you know, it's one thing to work with them when they're children. And it's an entirely different thing to have a relationship with them as the adults they are now. And it's just, it's been a really beautiful two years. So d- describe them as people who, you know, who they grew up to become. Describe them because uh, everyone feels like that it, they're our brothers. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Henry ha- has just continued acting in really, really important endeavors. Um Robert, who played the older son, works for the Postal Service right now. And Danny uh, has been managing restaurants. He's just getting back into acting after after I was on him for about three years to do it. Really? Aw. They're all great. They're all great, great young men. Did you see The Fablemans? (laughs) Of course. And did it warm your heart seeing the roots of this man who created these iconic movies, including the one you were in? Sure it did. Yeah, I thought Stephen did a really beautiful job in um, allowing us to understand where, how his passion was born and how it evolved and where he took it, you know, especially for young filmmakers. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think you maybe you have to get to a certain point in your life where you feel safe looking back. It's not going to come up and hurt you. It's you're you're Well, I spend my life looking back uh, <laughs> and helping people look back and letting go. Right, right. That's a, a, bit, a Yeah, a big part of my work is if we're going to move on in life, you got to let go of your stories. We all have stories, you know. I was poor my dad was an alcoholic, two people <laughs> in my family committed suicide. That's my story. Yeah. But if I keep defining myself as my story, I keep living that definition. And that's not who I am. But do you feel point. like do you feel like there's a lot of people who either think about it too much or Absolutely. try or try to stuff it down? But don't have oh. a healthy, you know, your goal is for them to have a healthy relationship. Acknowledge, but not let it own you. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good summary. Acknowledge where you came from, and that's not who you are. Mm-hmm. All right, let me talk about the, the movie with the best title, other than E.T., that you've ever done, The Legend of Cat Claws Mountain. Yes. And I read about this movie. This is like uh, Brokeback Mountain, but for cats, right? <laughs> is it? <laughs> No, I'm sorry. Not. Okay. Not. That's a cool name. What's that movie about? It's cat representation. Fritz, you are so funny. Um, It's a family film. Oh, actually. Uh, uh, And I play a very interesting uh, character in it that you think is 
just the sweet. I've graduated sometimes to grandmas now. So she's a very sweet grandmother um, who turns out to have quite a twist mm. at the end. But it's about this legend that it happened on the mountain and a magical horse and it's just a really beautiful little family film. Mm. I read it and I went, yeah, I, I would really like to be involved in this. Oh, that's very nice. And where can we see that? I, it'll be out in the theaters. I'm not quite sure where, when, but soon. How about Incubus New Beginnings? Well, uh, Incubus is uh, another horror film. You know, mm -hmm. guys, I lead a very interesting life. I I spend half my life doing horror films now and, and other things. I do a lot of Hallmark and family films, but I do a lot of horror films. And then I teach people how to heal themselves from fear. <laughs> but, but, but you have found a through line. You have found a way yeah. in which this is actually healing or how people can find some healing energy through being horrified. And actually, if you Google it, the positive effects of watching horror films, mm -hmm. you will be stunned. Please tell us more. Well, it's good for your brain. It's good for your nervous system. Uh, that's why every Disney movie has an evil character in it. Mm. Because it gives a child the opportunity to work through their fears in a safe environment. Okay. Well, what do you think we're doing when we go see a film like Cujo? Mm -hmm. We'd never want to really be in that situation, but we love to go on the ride and handle it within the confines of a safe four walls. So everybody should Google that. I was stunned. Well, that's interesting because in, in your book, I don't know if it was in Born or one of the other ones that we read, you talk a lot about a child's personality being set between zero yeah. and eight years old, yes, which sir. is also a great defense of early education, which has always been a political football here in California, whether or not we should you pay bet. for it or not. You, you absolutely. Whatever you are verbally taught or modeled in front of you, uh, your brain thinks that's the way the world works. And until you get conscious that you have a choice to create the world you want, then that runs you. So for those of you listening, if you keep hitting a wall, like keep hitting a wall of money or keep hitting a wall in relationships or success, go back and see what was taught to you about making a lot of money or modeled to you. Um, for example, in relationships, uh, my father was an alcoholic. I watched my mother uh, work herself to death and take care of my dad. My grandfather, who had been a very big CPA, by the time I came along, had suffered two strokes. So I watched my grandmother take care of my grandfather. So my world was women take care of men. Mm. That's the way relationships work. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of the way my relationships did work for a really long time. 
Yeah, and I had a I had a similar situation, and it wasn't. It's not intentional. You know, the parents don't have always have an intention oh, no. that they're. No, 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 no. But my my dad had uh, suffered polio when he was engaged to my mom, so I had a father in a wheelchair, and uh-huh. I and I watched my mom do everything. And my dad was a, a, the best father ever, wonderful, but he couldn't reach something off his shelf. He couldn't chase a child running down the hallway out of the bath. He he couldn't do those emergency moment things, and so my mom was always overextended. And I saw marriage as being of service, and I so I opted for career. Right. And ultimately, that transforms into love equals service. Right, and and service is wonderful, but I I kind of well, wanted service yeah. is wonderful yeah. to a degree. Mm. When you start giving yourself up, mm-hmm. then you start enabling other people. I see. It doesn't allow you to to, fulfill your full potential. Or you enable people to take advantage of you because they see that that's who you are in the world. And that's what you'll do for them. So you described your younger life. You had a father who was an alcoholic and you saw his relationship with your mother and you saw your grandmother's relationship with your grandfather. And since then, you've written five books that have improved a lot of lives. So were those relationships that you watched the origin story of you growing up to be a healer or was it your own personal experience or both? I think both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm a clear audience channel, which is uh, sounds very airy fairy, but anybody can channel and all the information's just hanging out right up here. Kids do it all the time. We call them their imaginary friends, but they're really getting information from the from the universe so i used to i had a lot of experiences when i was younger um tapping into that like uh, one time my i woke my mom poor mom she had to be at work at 7 a.m and i woke her up i was very close to my grandma she took care of me during the days and i said something's wrong at grandma's house so mom got up and called and grandma didn't answer So bless her heart, we got in the car, we drove up over there. Cat had gotten up on the stove, turned all the, you know, the burners on, but the, ga- the gas was coming out. Oh, Lord. So, you know, who knows if Grandma would have been okay by the morning, but it wasn't a good situation. That was a so rough I day. I used to get a lot of messages like that, and, and it's just uh, now I, I work with people all over the world. I have four private sessions that I'm doing today. Wow. Did your, did your parents realize your gift, particularly after your grandmother's episode, since my, this girl's special? My, both my parents were very talented. My mother was an amazing actress in Kansas. My dad was an entrepreneur. I think the war really did him in. Mm. Um, and yes, they, they would always say that I came in to be the bright light Aww. Oh, wow, wow. in the family. Yeah. Pretty cool. Well, As a matter of fact, that's one of my books called Bright Light. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about your latest book, Born Before It's Too Late. It's Born oh, yeah. Giving Birth to a New You. And if any of these topics have piqued your interest about um, Dee's thoughts about all these, they're all extremely interesting. Um, she has one catchphrase that we could all live by and that is it's about accepting your own magnificence which i just love 
I've even said that to my children since the first you time. You bet. And, you know, guys, born, first of all, it's a formula. I write out the entire formula for creating your life. And once you know the formula, you just apply it to any subject that you want. And I just want to ask everybody, so thinking back at your childhood, how many of us were taught you're amazing, you're magnificent, you're smart, you're talented, ask for anything you want in this life. I don't know anybody that was. No. And so then we get to 20, 30, 40, 50, and we go, God, why can't I ask for what I want? That's Why can't I take steps in creating what I want? Well, you got to reparent your little child because they're running the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky it's a tricky needle to thread because your kid is asking for all kinds of material things. She wants whatever gum she sees at the checkout counter, et cetera, et cetera. So you usually have to say no because you're just trying to get through the day and these are things that she doesn't necessarily need. There, but there's a difference in saying, you know, don't ask me for anything else. You're not supposed to sit down, shut up. You're supposed to be seen and not heard. Mm -hmm. And and don't ask for what you want. Good little girls and boys don't do that. That's very different than, honey, you can ask for anything you want. Sometimes mommy has to say no. Ah, I love that. Yeah, that puts it on them. I like that yeah, idea. I love that. Well, you, you, you've got four, you call them clients, patients, Friends, what, what do you call the people you work with? Clients. Seriously, clients. clients, okay. And you also do uh, many webinars, and you have a live call-in show, which is interesting, and what a yeah. great time, 9 o'clock Sunday mornings, when people are in that contemplative mood, and mm. you know, it's, it's a great time yeah. to have a... Yeah, and you can call in and ask the channel anything, nothing's off, off limits. Um, I'm going on my 600th show. Wow. wow. Good for you. We're on 129, yeah. so I don't know if we're ever going to catch you. Mm -hmm. But we just want to thank you so much. I'll wait for you. Yeah, okay. What else <laughs> should we know? What else would you like folks to know before we get to the closing credits? Just love yourself. What's your social media, Dee? You've got... Oh, God, I knew you were going to... Oh, we're going to we'll put it in there. It's all in the show notes. So It'll be in it. the show notes. We'll okay, post it. it's in the show notes. Yeah, it's <laughs> in the show notes. We love you, Dee We love Wallace. you, Dee. Thank you so much for coming back Thank on the show. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. us. And you tell Adam I love him, okay? Oh, yeah, he'll hear we will, this. we will. will. Okay. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediaPathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is MediaPathPodcast, and our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. You can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show, would you kindly give us a nice rating? That's like five whole stars in Apple Podcasts and talk about us on, <laughs> on social media. You can sign up for our saucy rag of a newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. And we want to thank our wonderful guests, Adam Schiff and Dee Wallace. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox, and I am Louise Planker, here with Fritz Coleman and Dee Wallace and Adam Schiff. Be well and wise. Oh, Fritz has one more thing to say before we... We, we love you. Help out nonprofits that do wonderful Yeah, work. we do. Even Dee will appreciate this one. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I'm involved with a, a group called New Directions for Youth, 
North Hollywood, and, and they are a wonderful after-school service for children from at-risk families, and they serve both the children and the parents. They have programs like juvenile reentry after incarceration. They have counseling services that provide recovery into a productive life. They have the after-school program that provides a safe space for homework and play and filling in the gap of food insecurity. One of the biggest problems that at-risk families have is they either can't afford or two parents are working, they're not around to feed their children breakfast, so they give them some protein in the afternoon when they need it. They do a wonderful job. And they're having a fundraising fashion show on Sunday, uh, May 7th, at Macy's Topanga at 9 o'clock, and you can see some fashions and maybe pick out something you think would look good on you or a loved one and come and support the organization. Thank you for and, there, and there's going to be brunch. You, There'll you, be brunch. You promised me brunch. Yeah. <laughs> be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. Hey, D, excellent job. All right, don't leave. We're going to take our picture with you. Uh, Thomas will tell you when to smile. We're going to stand by. Okay. Back.